Thank you. It's fun to be back. Um, I've had the privilege, I don't know how many, three or four times the Ricks had me uh, preach, which I'm very privileged. In some ways for our family, this has become like a second church home for us. There's, every time I've gotten to come, my whole family has come down. I realized this morning when Eric showed his slide that I was the only speaker who was not intending to show a slide of my family. So I texted my wife real quick since I thought, I can't look like I don't love my family compared to these other guys. <laughs> Whew. So she, good thing she checks her phone quickly and was able to zip one back to me. And of course, she only finds good pictures. This is our family. You've seen those of us who are here on Sunday mornings. I've seen us at times come in and out. And um, so my two sons, Ellie and Uni, are here with me, which is very grateful that, that they would have us that I could join. We actually decided to make it a boys weekend. We stayed at a hotel last night. You know, all 30 minutes of the drive was just too much to do back and forth in the morning. <laughs> and uh, we wanted that extra sleep and it was a lot of fun. Um, I've, it's been really fun to have you guys encourage my sons. Um, other than table 14, table 14 took it really hard on last night in the contest of throwing the, the, the uh, bean bag. So Table 14, I'm really ashamed of how you guys treated my sons. I was expecting, some, no, 14's over here, isn't it? I'm looking at the wrong table, which one? Anyway, um, so I'm here to t- sort of be the change up. Uh, the, the theme is when f- plans fall apart, and what I'm here to talk about is what happens when flan- plans fall apart and it's your own fault. You're the reason that the plans fall apart. Some of you may be able to resonate with that more than others, and some of it's going to be a little bit heavy, and so before we get to the heavy, I want to tell a quick story of, that's a little bit lighter. We just got a dog about a year ago. Now, we're a family of four high schoolers. Literally this year, we have, uh, as of right now, we have 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. That's the ages of our kids. They, in, in about two months, they'll shift, and we no longer get line up. But from the time that my youngest daughter, Stella, the one who's beside me in the picture, has been able to be uh, literate and verbal, she has asked for a dog. And I'm not exaggerating. Every year for Christmas, every year for her birthday, every other occasion in which there was something, what would you like to be a dog? I want a puppy. I want a dog. And for whatever reason, for the first, you know, 14 years of her life, I was anti-dog. I grew up with dogs, but I grew up in the, in the country... <clears throat> We grew up with bird dogs. They never came inside. They kind of just lived outside and did their own thing, and then we'd take them hunting with us. So the, the Southern California dog mindset was sort of anathema to me. I wasn't really too keen on it. And, um, and then when we brought our sons into our family, in the orphanage, both of my boys lived for a, a good amount of time in the orphanage in Adasaba, but in the orphanage, the orphanage workers told all the children in the orphanage, if you go to America, you get a car and you get a dog. To the point that Uni thought he got his own personal car, and when we got him out from the airport, he literally was just walking up to a car. He was going to, this is the one I guess I'll take. I'll take this car right here. He was going to jump in a car. I'd never driven one before. And the boys had lived, the boys came into my family when they were seven and eight years old, six and seven, something like that. And it took them a while to learn English. They didn't know English right off. And I remember exactly where I was. They They were in the house for about four to six months, and one day we're driving down the road, and Elias says, Dad, dog? When are we going to get a dog? The orphanage worker said we get a car. We got that. We're supposed to get a dog. That was part of the deal. Package deal. Supposed to get a dog. So we finally did. You can see this is, I had my wife add this one in because this is part of the story. So we added a puppy about a year ago. This is Steinbeck. And I'm telling the story because Steinbeck got himself in some trouble. 
about three months after we got into our house. And Steinbeck broke in and ate a bunch of chocolate. Now, a dog's digestive system is, is, a, is a shock to me, right? Because I've seen dogs eat any number of disgusting, horrible things and it not, then have no struggles. I've seen my dogs that I grew up in would eat birds that they had just caught. Like, just eat the bird. Raw bird. Like, birds are foul, right? So they eat these foul things. Anyone who's taken their dog on a walk has seen their dog sniff, lick, and eat poop. So our dogs can eat any number of disgusting, horrible things. But then all of a sudden, oh, well, avocados and grapes and chocolate. Oh, the dog's digestive system is so sensitive. I don't understand it. But all of a sudden, you have to be so worried about your dog ingesting these normal, everyday things that if he has even the slightest bit of grape juice, he's going to die on the floor. So Stella made some of these pops. Stella is our aspiring baker. She's starting a little business, and she was making those. You see them at Starbucks, the little cake pops where they, you know, they dip them, in the, and they had white chocolate, and they had a little bit of dark chocolate in them. And she had made a bunch of these, and they sat around the TV, and we all went outside and did something. And while we're outside, Steinbeck climbed in and ate about eight of the cake pops. In which case, so now you have to realize we have four high school-age kids who their whole lives have wanted a dog, and they're all thoroughly convinced the dog's going to die in 20 seconds. And I'm the farm kid who's like, look, he's, he weighs 50 pounds. He ate a couple of ounces of chocolate. My guess is he's going to be sick for a little while and he's going to be fine. So that was the, that was the line, right? I, I recall in the living room, the, the children are oh, laying around the dog saying goodbye. He's just wanting more cake pops. That's all he wants, right? He's like, Dad, we've got to take him to, we've got to, take him to the vet. Yeah, we dads are like, what, that's 90 bucks, 120 bucks? They're going <laughs> to, I mean, I love the dog too, but come on. <laughs> so then I say, all right, I can fix this. Google real fast. Google, and it's amazing. You know, on, Google brought me right to the right page where you put in weight of dog. How about 50 pounds? How much chocolate did he eat? Oh, just about eight ounces or something like that. Six ounces wasn't very much. Hit enter. Kids, look, it says here. Because of the weight of our dog and the amount of chocolate that he ate, he's going to be sick a little bit, but he's going to be just fine. End of story. Oh, Dad, but what if? What if? And then at some point I'm realizing if the dog dies and I'm the one who's responsible because they trusted my word, I don't know if I could live with that. And I'm still thinking, I don't want to go to the vet. That vet, that's 120 bucks. What am I going to do? So then we get the bright idea. I don't know if anyone's ever done this. The greatest sham I've ever experienced, I'm going to tell you about now, and it's the dog poison hotline. Has anyone called this one? <laughs> Pet poison hotline. You imagine it's like the human poison hotline where you call and someone who really wants to help you tells you whether you're going to die or not. And that's sort of how the call begins, but at some point in the conversation, after you've said the weight of the dog and after you've said the amount of chocolate that it's eaten or whatever else, they say, okay, uh, wait for a brief hold, please. A brief hold? I mean, now you tell me whether my dog's going to die or not. And they flip you over to someone else and they say, okay, for a simple, easy card payment of $65.99, we will tell you the results of the poison hotline. What, I mean, what a, I'm not lying. I'm sure I could have hung up and called five others and find the free one or maybe try to get someone to talk them down $10. But at that point in time, right, what's, I'm emotionally invested. I've, I'm honoring my sunk cost. That's what we call it. I've already been on the phone with them for three minutes. I'm like, 
Okay, it's less than going to the vet. So we pull, I mean, so you literally, you're waiting for your dog. I was just thinking, what if my dog was literally on his last breath? And I'm taking the time to pull my credit card out to read the digits to find out whether the dog's going to die or not. Read the digits, everything else, they click me back and guess what she says. Well, given the weight of your dog and the amount of chocolate that he ate, I think he's going to be sick for a little while and then he's going to be just fine. $65 down the drain. But peace of mind that I could tell the kids, hey, the, the professionals whom we pay, it, it, my first thought as a businessman is that's a great business plan, right? Everyone's going to pay that 65 bucks. They, they make a lot of money by just reading the same Google page that we can all read for free. I'm convinced that's what they were doing. So anyway, we can make our lives a lot more problematic with a lot bigger issues than the dog eating chocolate. The passage I want to use, and we're going to turn in a little bit to a different Old Testament passage. I'm going to start orientating our minds with a couple of passages first. Um, and this first one is Psalm 7. This is a tough passage uh, for some of us more than others, maybe. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies and makes a pit, digging it out. And he falls into it, into the hole that he has made. Some of us have made a pit. Some of us are in the process of digging a pit. Some of you may be in your pit right now that you've dug for yourself. No one knows about it. And maybe some of you are just starting to dig a pit, and you're not even aware of the damage that you're creating in your own life. And in my life, five and a half years ago, the Lord in his wisdom, as Eric just talked about, chose to reveal by his grace and goodness that I had been hiding an adulterous affair from my wife, from my church, from my profession. And God saw fit to bring that out into the light. No surprise if you read Proverbs, right? Things done in the dark will be brought into the light. Who's going to hold fire up to their chest and not be burned? So no surprise, although it was shocking to me because I was certain that I could outsmart everyone and outfidget everyone and somehow stay on top of it. And God in his grace decided to let me fall into the hole square that I had dug for myself. That was, that was difficult. At that time, I had been preaching somewhat regularly at the church. I had just started sort of being able to go and, and speak at a couple of other churches. And, and I, was, I was feeling really good about the ministry that God had, had, had been placing me into while at the exact same time, this hole being dug in my life and in my soul and in my spiritual life getting worse and worse without me really doing honest work to what needed to happen. Because of that, right, obviously it destroyed my wife, just crushed my wife, damaged our family. I still remember the time I'm sitting in the living room having to tell my sons and my daughters I was unfaithful to mom. Uni's my truth speaker. Uni says, Dad, is that what the Bible calls adultery? Like, yeah, bud, that's what it is. Let's just use what the Bible says. That's exactly what it is. And so my sons losing faith in their father as a godly role model because of an obvious sin that's come out, uh, crush my wife, damage my family, uh, lie to my church leadership, to the entire congregation of which I was involved in ministry, and ultimately even losing my professional career as a professor at Biola, justly losing my professional career, right? There was nothing unjust about that. It's exactly what should have happened. It was actually, for me, what needed to happen for me to face the consequences of the hole that I had dug. 
Now, obviously stories like this, if you continue walking, there's redemption. And Psalm 40, so the, the image I want to use for us is this pit image, right? This digging of the pit, falling into the pit. We're the ones that dig the pit. That's our role. And God's role is what? Well, by his grace, by his mercy, pulling us out of the pit. Here's a psalm probably many of you are more familiar with. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure, right? So in this story, we're the ones digging the pit. We're the ones putting ourselves in harm's way. God's the one pulling us out and bringing us the redemption. In my case, the church was very involved in that. Praise the Lord. We stayed within the church, the leadership of the church, the elders of the church. Part of that redemption, your church played a role in by your pastor, Rick, who I had a relationship during this time as well. The first time I ever preached after this failing was right in there between many of you guys. Rick was very aware of what was happening. I was very aware of happening, but most of you weren't aware. This was part of God's redemption, a minor part. The, the redemption needed to happen in my soul was so much more important than the redemption needed to be happening in public speaking or preaching or anything like that. But God used that as well. And one of the things, this, what we're going to actually spend our time, well, next, the rest of our time, is not talking explicitly about me and my story, because that makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and we're going to talk about another biblical character who dug a hole and fell into it. Because it's something I've realized over these last five years. I'm not alone. I'm in pretty good company. Of people who in the Bible dug a pit, fell into it, and then God brought them out. And David comes to mind, obviously, with his sin with Bathsheba, and then murder on top of that. But yet God still uses him, calls him a man after God's own heart. I think of Peter, when he, at the end of the Gospels, denies Jesus three times, right? And, and leading up to that, the pride of telling Jesus and the rest of the disciples, well, they may, those idiots may fall away, but I'll never fall away, right? You see that, that pride setting up perfectly. I love First and Second Peter because the, the Peter you encounter in First and Second Peter is a very different Peter than the gospel Peter. And I think it's because the humility, that, that fall, that brokenness, there's an empathy, there's a wisdom that's not there in brash, young fisherman Peter. It's wise, old, beat up, humble Peter. And I love that transition. And the character we're going to look at this morning is Jonah. So that's the book I want us to open up to. We're going to look at Jonah and see the hole that he dug. It's a story we're all very familiar with. So Jonah 1, we're basically only going to be looking at Jonah 1 and a little bit into Jonah 2. As you're flipping to Jonah 1 in your Old Testament, let's see that the same exact imagery is used here for Jonah. This is in the prayer. So here's the big picture overview of the story of Jonah, which we all know. Jonah's a prophet. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah says no, goes the exact opposite direction, gets on a boat. A tempest comes. It's about to sink the whole boat. The sailors are terrified. Where's Jonah? Asleep in the bottom of the boat. We're going to talk about that. The sailors are noble. These are some noble people pagan sailors. They really try hard to save Jonah. Even after he confesses to them why it is that, that God 
the Lord of the ocean is trying to destroy and sink their boat. They're still going to try to row. They're still going to try to save him. There's no reason for them to do this, but they still try. And finally, they throw him in. He gets swallowed by a fish, and for three days he's in the fish. And at some point in his prayer, which is what Jonah 2 is, you see this, and we get the same pit imagery. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. We're going to look through Jonah's story a little bit. One of the things that's interesting about this specific part of Jonah's prayer, you brought me up from the pit as being prayed from what we mostly would think he's still in the pit. He's still in the fish, still somewhere down low. But yet, in his own experience, no, 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 the Lord is, is, is in the process of, of, hum, of humiliating him in the best sense of the word so that he can rightly say, okay, God, you've already brought me up from the pit. We would expect this prayer to come after he hits the land. Oh, I'm out of the pit. I'm out of the fish. But the fish was God's plan to get Jonah out of this pit that he had fallen into of his own sin, which we'll see in a second. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to just get some lessons from Jonah. And some of these are from my own experience. And a lot of these are from over the course of the last really two to three years, my wife and I have, have had have the privilege of the Lord using as a part of our redemption that we've walked along a number of other couples who have either in the past or in, in the moment experienced some level of infidelity. We found that we're primarily good at w working with couples whose story is similar to ours, where it's the husband who is the infidel and the wife is the betrayed. Good news is that's the vast majority of the people who this happens. It does happen the other way sometimes, obviously. But, and it's, we particularly find ourselves in a role where I'm particularly good at speaking to that man who was successful, who is powerful, who was a leader, who had a successful business or a successful ministry or whatever else. And that success just got so much to him that he just thought he could maybe sneak a little something on the side. And for whatever reason, God's given me eyes to see through that guy because not many people have seen through that guy throughout his life and here's the lord's grace of you falling into your pit and here's another guy who kind of knows what it's like to be in a similar pit to speak truth to that so we're not going to do a commentary of jonah one we're going to walk through jonah's life and we're going to pull out lessons for us now before i do that i want to there's some hermeneutical you know quicksand that we want to make sure we don't fall into. So we want to make sure when we walk into something like this that we're doing a bibliocentric, Christocentric hermeneutic. And I know that's a mouthful, but, but trust me, the only reason I use those words is to impress you about how smart I am. It's the only reason I use them. What we want to make sure is that we don't think that Jonah's about me or think that Jonah's about you, right? Jonah's about so much more. It's about God and ultimately, it's about Jesus, and we see that. So, and, and at the end of this, I'm going to sort of say, hey, here's a couple of things that if Jonah really was about how to get out of addictions or how to, how to self-rescue, then there was other things that would no doubt be, in, be involved here that are not. But because of that, what I want us to do is to realize, well, here are the big picture moves that we can see in Jonah that we can relate to what we're talking about today. The first one is, Jonah finds himself in a place he never thought he would be, right? He finds himself saying no to God, 
and running away from God. Now, my guess is when Jonah uh, signed up and applied for the job of prophet, whatever that application looked like back then, he probably never foresaw the time that was going to come that from being happy and being called to be a prophet of God, he would be on a boat trying to run from God, right? So he's, he's in a big no. He's in a place that he never thought that he would be. And I want to say right now that part in this 30 minutes that I have left is I, I want to say I am not under the impression that there are anyone, that there is anyone in the room who's in the exact same place I was six years ago today. But there might be. In fact, at this large of a crowd, I wouldn't be surprised, wouldn't be shocked at all. But it's very likely that in a group this size, there's all kinds of holes and pits in your lives that hopefully the, the Holy Spirit can help you see. Right? Um, Throughout, one of the, in the first year of my own failing, the Lord was so gracious and he brought many men to me who had dug a pit and the, the world had fallen down on them because of their own sin. I remember explicitly a good friend of our family, not in our church, who wanted to have lunch with me and shared with me, hey, when I was 40 years old, I, I was in the financial industry and I was stealing from my boss and no one knew it. And then it was revealed and I lost my job and I had to go home and tell my wife, honey, I lost my job because I'm a thief. That was helpful for me to hear. That was, what, what humility. I, don't, I got the feeling he hadn't told that story to a whole lot of people. And, and I realized that there's all kinds of holes and pits that we're digging as men that you may or may not be that aware of. And I want you to just spend some time this morning trying to be aware, what pit am I currently digging? And maybe it's, maybe it's not uh, an affair, but maybe it is emotional attachments that are not good for you, right? Or maybe it's a pornographic uh, looking too much. Whether, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, the terminology addiction, but whether it's an addiction or not, it's something that you know you shouldn't be involved with, that you dip into. Maybe it's a, a leaning into alcohol in a way uh, that's unhealthy and, and unsafe for you. You find yourself in a place you, you wouldn't have never thought you would be where you're like, wow, I'm drinking more nights than I used to, right? Because that's sort of what I'm thinking is Jonah found him in a place he never thought he would be. Maybe you find yourself in a place you never thought you'd be. You're a lot angrier than you ever thought you would be. And, and, and your, your loved ones, maybe your wife, is, is getting the brunt of that anger, and you find yourself, even in the moment, like, I never thought I would be here, but here I am. Or maybe you're just, maybe the unsettling events of 2020 has you full of anxiety and fear, understandably so, but still yet you think, I'm in a place I never thought I would be. And so I I want to just point this out for us individually, but I also think one of the, the second track of my talk this morning is even if you never fall in your own pit, and I pray the Lord that you don't, you will at some point in your life be called to walk alongside a brother who has. So that's the second sort of, the second road is, what do you do if you find yourself in your own pit, a pit of your own making? And what do you do if someone calls you or texts you at midnight and says, dude, I need your help? This is what just happened. And that's my hope. So we're going to use Jonah as our outline to get us to that point. So the first thought is we find Jonah in a place he never thought he would be running from God. Secondly, not in the text. The second point of this is that big no, that's what I call the first one. The big no, finding himself in a place he never thought he would be, no doubt was led up to by a series of small no's. No doubt. No doubt there were things in Jonah's life that he was harboring that set the stage for him to find himself at this big disaster of running from God. 
And we get some clues of what they might be later in the book of Jonah, right? There's some prejudice. He did not like these Ninevites. He did not like these Ninevites because he loved his nation. And he was afraid the Ninevites, and, and rightly so, because they end up doing it. He doesn't want the Ninevites to come destroy his own nation. So there's some, some nationality there, right? And, and some of that could be right, some of that could be wrong. But in this sense, you see it. It's a, it's a series of small no's. There's a series on um, Tim Keller's podcast right now on Jonah that was utterly helpful to me. It's, and it's all in the last month. And one of the things that Tim Keller says on that is, uh, Jonah had, you see multiple gods in role of Jonah's life. And so long as the primary god didn't get in the way of his other gods, he was happy with the primary god. But the minute that the primary god, the true god, told him, okay, I want you to go preach repentance to the Ninevites, all of his little gods said no. I love my country too much. I hate these people too much. I will not do it. It's a really good way to think. We're, we're harboring all these different gods and all these different idols and which ones are going to take control. Here's an image that I find really helpful in my own recovery. And this comes from a um, CCEF talk that was explicitly on a fair recovery um, from a man in the, in the Northeast who, for whatever reason, his practice as a biblical counselor is primarily with middle-aged men who have walked through infidelity. And he says, he brings up a picture of a, of a bridge. This is my family. Over these last five years, has had a couple of healing moments as a family. We've gotten to go to Big Sur. So this is a, this is a beautiful picture for us. This is Big Speed Bridge and Big Sur. A bridge is intended to get somewhere that you would not be able to go otherwise, right? So you have to spend a lot of time building a bridge to get a place that you would not be able to get to. In our situation, what I want you to think about is when you're Jonah and you find yourself this place you never thought you would be, you have to think, what did I build to get over to this point? And that's the series of small no's. So you've built a bridge. You've built a bridge to wherever that is. And let's, use, let's talk really quickly. Um, whether that is actual addiction or not, I don't think is the helpful question. So um, my counselor, how presumptuous of him, the first day we met in, in a marriage counseling, said, you need to go to S.A., you need to go to Sexaholics Anonymous. I was like, you don't even know me, dude. You haven't, you haven't even got it. I, I, I guess I was willing to pay him for eight hours for him to hear my side of the story before he just said, humble yourself and go do something to put yourself. And that was a humbling experience. And one of the things that took me a while to figure out, am I addicted to something? Am I not? Because I, I had struggles, but I, I don't think that I, could have capt that I could have categorized any of my sort of sexual acting out as actual addictions. And at some point, I, I read something, I, I uh, I was a, biblical, a Christian counselor, and he said, the real good term is false intimacies rather than addiction. And that changed the way I think. And I want to change it for you as well. What are those things that you're receiving intimacy from that you shouldn't be? I think that's a much more helpful way than, to think than addiction because, first of all, false intimacies start building that bridge, right? And you find yourself all of a sudden sort of in the hole too far over, and then we could properly probably call it an addiction. But I... There's something not so helpful about addictive vocabulary, in my opinion, because sometimes the addiction turns into something I'm powerless over and I just, you know, I'm a victim to. When I think that the biblical conception is, well, we're sinners, but we got to fight and we have the Holy Spirit. So you find yourself in this place. And so here's, here's what I want to say. This series of small no's, and in Jonah's life was something like, you know, some prejudice, some love of nation, maybe even some uh, 
self-righteousness. You see that with the sailors. All of these things that build him to the point that he gets over to where he was. Now, here's where the metaphor really pays off, okay? We're mixing metaphors with pits and bridges and whatever else, but just stay with me here. The counselor pointed out about the bridge image that when we get caught in our pit, we all run back across the bridge, right? That's just what you do. Of course, because you've been caught. The Holy Spirit has revealed it. So you come running across the bridge. But the whole point is what you've got to do is destroy the bridge so you don't just run back over it. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Because here's the deal. And, this, and when we get there, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. But the church, in my opinion, the evangelical church, from what I've walked through, is very, very good. Very good at not shaming the sinner when he comes to repent. Good for us. We got that just right. But I think maybe, particularly in contexts like this, we might as men forget, oh, that person needs help tearing down his bridge. So being forgiven and being saved are two different categories. So I was forgiven the minute that I confessed my sin, but I was not safe. I was not a safe husband for my wife for a while. Why? Because I hadn't done the work. I hadn't torn that bridge down. And as long as that bridge was there, when those same stresses were going to hit my life, I would start taking baby steps without realizing it back across. So Jonah finds himself in a place he never thought he would be. He's built this bridge of these small nose to lead to this big no. He's got to run across that bridge, and he's got to then destroy it on the other side. Actually, I don't want to go there yet. Okay, so we'll pick up now quickly through the story. Jonah's on the boat running away from God. God brings the tempest. If you read the text, it's actually really amazing how sovereign God is in this passage. God brings the tempest. God brings the fish, right? The sailors cast lots. It doesn't explicitly say God caused the lot to fall on Jonah, but we know that's what happened, right? So the tempest comes. He falls in the hole, and one of the things to be pointed out here is if you've dug your own hole, when the tempest comes by God's grace, who gets damaged? Who gets hurt? Everyone that's in your boat. And that's such an important thing. And here's the thing. When you're in the pit, when you're digging the pit, you're not thinking about anyone but yourself. And even if you are thinking about anyone, of, of anyone else, even if you are somehow thinking about your wife or your family or your kids or your extended family or your church, even if you are thinking about the other thing, that's ah, not going to be a big deal because no one's going to know. That's the whole lie, isn't it? But when the tempest comes, everyone in your boat gets damaged, gets hurt. It's what you see in the sailors. The sailors, these are professional sailors. They're terrified. It wouldn't take very big waves to terrify me. But these guys, they get terrified. And what's Jonah doing? Jonah's asleep. I think there's something going on there. Like, I, I don't think it's just he's such a cool cucumber, right? I really think that he has gone, and so one of, the, one of the other things I listened to early on said, watching someone, was another CCF talk, watching a man come out from an affair is like watching someone wake up from a coma. It's a sin coma. We see Jonah here in a sin coma. Because it, he can't deal with the nose that he's given God. So rather than deal with it, what has he done? He's just sort of passed out. It's just easier to forget about the world and try to act like it doesn't exist. And they shake him and they wake him up. And the next thing you see Jonah do, <coughs> they say, who is your God? And he says, I fear the Lord of heaven who made the waters, made the oceans. 
People disagree about what this statement is, right? Is it, a, is it an initial confession by Jonah? Or is it sort of a prideful comment? I'm better than you guys. I fear the right God. Because I can certainly say at least right before you make that claim, I have really good evidence to think you don't actually fear that God. The very fact you're on this boat is evidence that you don't really fear that Lord. You don't really fear the true God. So I think that there's a little bit of his, um, I'm better than you pagans because I worship the true God. They, they keep, they're throwing stuff overboard. They're trying to go, trying to do whatever they can. And then um, the storm gets worse. And then they cast lots. God's hand providentially causes the lot to go to Jonah. And here you have, I think, the first time where he actually gives a confession. I've hit that age in which I cannot read my Bible without my glasses. So let's look at that. Look at verse 11 in chapter 1 of Jonah. We're skimming over it, but it's, it's good. It is God's word, and it is more true than anything I have to say. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me to the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come to you. I would suggest this is the first confession you have from Jonah, but I believe it's primarily an intellectual confession. It's a mental assent. Yes, I have sinned. God is punishing me for my sin, but I would suggest it's highly unlikely that the emotional import has hit Jonah yet of what he has done in the pit that he has made. I think that that required the next step. He's in the sin coma. He gives these sort of two... Maybe, you know, I, I fear the Lord. No, not, you don't really. Throw me in. I'm the reason God has done this. That's an intellectual uh, recognition of his sin. And then they actually do it. The, the sailors in the passage prove that they fear the Lord way more than Jonah, right? They're, oh, Lord, don't please. Uh, they're, they're trying to save him. They're praying to the true God, asking him not to hold this man against him. Throw him in. The waters become still. And then in a very beautiful passage of God's grace, although we as children, when we learn the passage, we don't see it that way. They picked up Jonah in verse 15, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord. Exceedingly, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. There we see them fearing the Lord. In verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord appointed the fish. Here's the point I want us to bring up. These three days, that's exactly the app that I use. It's, I, I, I recognize the voice. That's exactly, that's the ESV app. I'm virtually certain. Uh, here's something I got out of this book. And this is a book I've been talking about a little bit recently. It's called, it's a book by Ed Welch. And it's called, I love the title. If nothing else, the title is worth the, the cost of the whole book. Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. If you have an addiction, you're struggling with an addiction, you're setting a feast before yourself that you're enjoying dining on your way to death. Proverbs, this has a lot of Proverbs imagery. <clears throat> Ed Welch is talking about addictions explicitly, and he talks about some of the same stuff I talked about. He doesn't use the term um, false intimacy, but he is talking about some of the dangers of uh, thinking too much or you know, leaning too much in the addictive uh, mindset, and he does some really nice work there. But I loved this picture. It's simplicity and it's clarity to me uh, when I reread this just in the last three months was astounding. So he said, here's a circle. Here's four things that are essentially related 
to all people in addictions at all times. Lying, blaming others, um, blind to sin. I I'm in this problem where I can't read that and I can't read this either one, so I'm, just, I'm in a bad spot. But the last one, the one I think is really playing a strong role in my life back then, and it's a primary difference between near, me now and then, is a lack of fear of the Lord. A lack of a fear that God's going to, God knows. It's almost like I if I fear people, I can sort of hide and stuff things from them and somehow just forget that God knows as well and that that somehow is what brings about the ability to keep digging that hole, thinking that it's not going to be found out. I don't think that it's a mistake that Jonah's prayer becomes the emotional import of what he says verbally starts to resonate after three days being in the fish. Now, we don't know for sure, but a plain reading of the text seems to suggest Jonah's in the fish for three days, and after three days, he prays this prayer. Now, my guess is, on day one, if you ask Jonah, Jonah, how does your repentance look now? He'd be like, man, I'm a lot more repentant than I was on the ship. You go back on day two. Day two, Jonah, how are you doing now? Whoa, I thought yesterday I was repentant. Today, I'm re you understand what's going on, right? I think there's something essential about the time. And so this is, here's, here's sort of some of the nuts and bolts. When someone's coming out of the hole, whether it's you or a friend, I think there's three things. If you write nothing else down, write these down for you to remember for later on. There's three things that people need, particularly men, need to come out of the hole. The first one is humility. Eric already talked about it earlier. I think it's utterly, utterly vital that this person has dug a hole out of their pride. They thought that they would not be found out because they thought somehow that they could hold it all together. So they need humility. They need submission. And they need time to get out of that hole. Humility, submission, and time. One of the things, being in this world now, that I, it grieves me to hear stories, and they're much more common than any of us would like to recognize. My guess is in this room, many of you have been in some church setting at some place where the pastor got embroiled in some sort of sexual scandal, right? I don't even want to see the hands, because it probably would make us all sad. What makes me sad now is how few of those times that pastor, that person of authority, is subjected to those three things as a part of the process of his restoration. Submission, humility, and time. Because pastors or leaders or businessmen or whomever else used to call in their own shots are not at all accustomed to falling under the submission of the authorities in their church to humiliating themselves publicly and privately in their marriage and in their family and then to just sort of sitting and waiting. In fact, it's very common, very common for someone to kind of take three months off after having an affair who's a pastor and a blogger, and, and, and they're already back on the circuit, and they're telling people about, oh, man, here's what God... And because of my experience, when I hear that, I see through at least some of... There's no doubt that they're farther, further along than they were, but there's a part of me that thinks, I would love to have the, word, the role to say, just stop everything for a year, at least a year, maybe two. We don't need to hear from you for a little while. You need to stop thinking we need to hear from you. That's the primary point, right? You need, to, you need to realize we don't need to hear from you. 
you need to hear from the Lord, and you need to hear from us. And it breaks my heart. I mean, there are pastors of large churches who get caught in affairs who show up and say, okay, here's what I need. I just, I just need a sabbatical. I'm just burned out. So I'm going to read these books. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And what's happening? The pastor is just all of a sudden in charge of his own restoration process. That's not going to go well. Now, maybe that guy can, can keep it all tucked in, and maybe that will not express itself in a sexual sin again. But there's, there's a lot of pride that didn't get broken through that situation. Because we need humility, submission, and time. I think about Jonah. Um, I think we as Christians sometimes don't give our brothers the... <coughs> we're not encouraging them to take the time that they need to take. Let me put it that way. If you were in Jonah's discipleship, you were in his accountability partner, and he's on the boat... And, he, and, all, and it's just now been revealed that, that he's fallen in the hole and this tempest is coming because of God. And he says, I know it's because of me. How many of us would have said, okay, Jonah, you're okay. You're good. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't think about it anymore. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And then somehow gotten in the way of the three days in the fish that Jonah really needed to face. Now, there's, I'm not trying to say we don't give a message of forgiveness. There is a message of forgiveness. But there is a way to present that message alongside a Ah, there's going to be, this is going to be hard. I'm here with you. I'm going to walk with you. But you're going to have to go down a little bit. You're going to have to go into the pit a little bit. You're going to have to face some of these consequences a little bit. I don't know if this confession from you is as heartfelt as I'd like for it to be yet. I'm going to pray that it will be, but time will tell. One of the elders of our church and a dear friend, uh, Rob was walking through my story, and my wife would constantly, because we were very, and this is going to be my last point, and I'll, and I'll skip and jump there a little bit. We were very fortunate that this occurred in a context of our church in which we were dealt with by a ministry team of men and women. So often the men take the man off, so we need to fix him, and the poor wife is just sort of like just off by herself. And really, I mean, who's the victim in this case, right? The wife's the victim. Yes, the man, the infidel needs some, he needs help. But the wife needs ministry, she needs encouragement, she needs love, and she needs support. And our church, I think, just happenstance because of our relationships and some very mindful, got it right where there were women who were walking with my wife and men who were walking with me. And my wife would go to my friend and say, how can I tell if my husband's being honest or not? And my friend, in the words, I always hated to hear him, but he was absolutely right. He's like, well, time will tell. What did I want to hear? I wanted him. You're my friend. Go tell my wife I'm perfect. Go tell my wife I'm safe. Go tell my wife all that I've done. Like, that's what I wanted to hear. But I needed to hear from him. Well, time will tell. Time, submission, humility. That's what it's going to take. Then we see this beautiful prayer. And at the end of the prayer, this is the passage I want us to look at again, then I'll make a couple of final points. Jonah's beautiful prayer in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And now verse 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 is a beautiful message of grace. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against the message that I gave you, that I tell you. Almost word for word, the same directions that he was given in the very start of the book. I would expect there to be a little shaming there. Hey, did you figure it out this time, Jonah? 
I'm going to give you another chance. That's how I probably talk to my sons more than I should. All right, hey, knucklehead, you ready this time? Think you can handle it? Right? Some scorn, some, some uh, reminding, some rubbing his nose a little bit on what he's done. You don't see any of that of God. You see God in mercy and in grace just saying, hey, Jonah, go to the city. Tell them to repent. In the exact same tone that I used in verse 1. And, of course, the full redemption and the full restoration you see is when Jonah does it. But if you read the rest of the book... As Tim Keller says, Jonah 4 might be one of the most surprising chapters in the Bible. He's still not, I, I kind of love that about it, right? He's still not perfect Jonah. Still has some lingering issues. He's better than he was. He still has some selfishness. Still has some pride. Still has some hatred. Still has some anger. Still has pieces of his bridge he needs to keep working on so he doesn't run right back across it. The one thing that makes me realize more than anything else that this book is not intended to be only used the way we just used it, is that it's completely in isolation, as if Jonah did this all by himself, because in this situation, that's how it worked. But that's not how it works in real life. We need each other. And Eric already made this point, made it last night. This is what a men's conference is all about, that if you are in a pit of your own digging right now, my guess is the Holy Spirit is, is leaning on you. And my guess is everything within you wants to do two things. Okay, I'm going to work on this. I'm not going to tell anyone. I got it, Lord. I got it this time. How, how, how well has that worked for you the last five times, ten times? I had plenty of those opportunities for myself. The only way out of that pit, the primary way, I should say, the primary way God uses to get out of that pit is brother's and sisters, but primarily in this context, brothers who love us enough, who are bold enough, who are courageous enough to not just sort of say, ooh, hey, you're forgiven, all things work to the glory of God, text me in a year, I'm uncomfortable right now, who are willing to enter in to the pit. It's one thing to say, wow, that's pretty rough down there, sorry about that, I uh, don't really know what to say to you, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. It's another thing to climb down in the pit with our friends, get dirty, get muddy, and be a part of the process of the Lord restoring someone and bringing them up and putting them on the clay. And that's hard. That takes, that, that's the, er, that is the encouragement for all of us. You have to be really brave to do that because you're going to face a lot of emotional uh, flack that you don't know how to deal with. And you're going to say a lot of times, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I love you. Let's pray. Let's look at the Bible again. Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to tell your wife, but I'm here for you, and let's pray. Let's look at the Bible. Like, there's something about that, right? There's something really powerful about that, and the use of this plurality of helping one another. I am convinced that in my own life, if God had not used a plurality of voices, I would not be to the point that I am today. And I'm like Jonah. I still have parts of my bridge I'm trying to tear up. But the Lord has, has redeemed me and has restored me, and I'm very grateful for that. I want to tell you one happy story and end on this. Um, in the ministry that my wife and I have now, which is ministry in the very loosest of context, we're available for people who are walking through marriage crisis. Um, we, have, we have dealt with some people, and... Um, 
I'm glad that I don't keep track of my batting average of those marriages who have ended in divorce, which have ended successfully. Obviously, it's not my wife and I's job anyway. I mean, we're going to do all we can, but the fact is many people we've worked with have ended up in divorce for one reason or another. But I want to tell one story, and I want to tell a story because I know not everyone here is married, and there are some young guys here, and I think this is a story that can resonate and be helpful for all of us of both our need to be honest and our need to use the resources that God has given us. Um, one day, a couple of years back, I received a message from a newly med, newly wed husband, young, good-looking guy, and he was crushed. And here's a story, and I've told my boys this story because I think it's really powerful. He had been looking at pornography since he was 12 years old. When he finally got engaged, he thought, oh, finally, finally I'm going to be married, and when I get married, I'll be out from underneath this, this pornography addiction that's dominated so much of my life, even to the point that in their premarital counseling, hey, do you have anything that your spouse doesn't know? And he just thought, no, I don't need to tell her because when upon marriage, this will no longer be an issue for me, right? That's lying, you know, lying to himself, dishonest, all of these things that you see right on this slide, gets married, beautiful wife, they're young, his honeymoon does not go well because he is, his life has been literally, his sexual life has been destroyed by his pornography addiction, to which he has to then all of a sudden tell his newlywed wife, why? Because I've been addicted to pornography since I was 12 years old. To which she says, why is this now coming out? We could have been working on this together. I would have. This is what she told him. Getting emotional in his account. She told him, I would have worked on this with you had I known. Man, we don't. We don't understand our, our wives and the women nearly well enough. She would, have, she would have, it would have been shocking to her. But she told me, I felt like it was a bait and switch. He presented himself as one person. And literally, we'd only been married a few hours, and he tells me the truth. And I told her, you have every right to feel that way. Yeah, that's what happened. You have every right to feel that way. Now, wow, what a horrible story, first of all. What a great story for us to tell our sons about the dangers of pornography. Whoa. Boys, have you ever forgotten that story after I told that one to you? Now, that's one that sticks with you. That's one that helps you with a little more resolve. That one, that's one that says, I need, I need help. I don't want to find myself in that situation as a 30-year-old, 32-year-old, 28-year-old married young man. Here's the beautiful part of the story. I've worked with a lot of 50-year-olds, not a lot, but some, who sort of grin and nod when you tell them what they should do, and then they just go do their own thing anyway because they're CEOs and they're used to doing their own thing. And those are the guys who don't get it. But this guy, man, if I'd have told him, you need to buy a ticket and you need to go climb Mount Everest, and he would, whatever you tell him to do, he's going to do it. And the good news is it wasn't just me. He was seeking out other people. He's like, I, my wife wants to divorce me within our first month of marriage. I will do anything and everything. He went to every conference. He read every book. He did everything you could possibly do. And more importantly, just in the time we spent together, he was making connections on his bridge. And here's one of the things he said. When you do the bridge work, when you start seeing the bridge, you start seeing things that no one else would ever connect to a pornography or a sexual addiction. And he said, um, I love the affirmation of people. 
I love the affirmation of my parents. And somehow, and I even when he told me, he's like, I don't quite see how that gets there, but he saw it, and that's all that's important. So then he was able to say, when people give me affirmation, I have a new filter now for how dangerous that is. Because he's doing his work. And now, Lord, thank you. They're married. They have one child. He had, he had aspirations for ministry. He had given all that up. It looks like some of those might be back on the table now. Praise the Lord. And we see this beautiful story of someone who was willing to face with, with, with honesty and with boldness what it is that God had called him to do. I'm going to pray. And I know this is heavy. Um, and I, I'm sure we have some table time and some lunch and whatever else. Throughout the rest of the conference... I'm going to be available off to the side. And if anyone, sometimes it's easier to confess to another broken person, <laughs> someone who's walked through some crud. So if that's easier for you, even though you don't know me very well, I am willing and available to do that. I would encourage you, if you come to me, one of the things I'm going to say is you need to, these are the guys you need to tell as well. But if you want to, if you have anything, right? And my guess is most of you are in a place where my hope is that your antennas are a little bit more raised for when that call comes or when that text comes to you, that you can be a little bit quicker to say, all right, he needs humility, he needs to submit himself to our authority, and he needs time. And we're going to pray for him, and we're going to preach the gospel. And of course, the whole story of Jonah is that Jesus was in the grave three days and rose again. And that same resurrection power, we have ourselves to climb into success, to climb back into ministry, and to do things that we would not be able to do otherwise. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you are a good God, and we see your grace all the way through Jonah. It's a surprising grace in Jonah. It's a, if a fish swallowed me, I'd be terrified. Some of us may have seen that video of the whale in the last week. Terrifying. None of us would think that was the grace of God coming to rescue us from the greater horror of digging a pit of our own sin, but that's exactly what it is. So God, we're grateful that you are a gracious God, that you love us. Um, I pray, God, that you would be doing work in men's souls, and you would be doing integrity work that we could share with one another, and I pray that you give us compassion and wisdom as uh, we encourage and exhort one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.